they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things to the who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Amen. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Jesus, again, we are here because you rose from the grave and you fill our hearts with joy at the nearness of your presence. We ask that you will make your word powerful to us. You awaken us, draw us to yourself that we might hear the words of the living God. We ask that you'll do this in your holy power. Amen. I want to begin by differentiating two different things. And that is good advice and good news. As humans, we give and receive advice all the time. As the saying goes, I think this was a song, uh, but no man is an island. So we receive and give advice all the time. Advice is supposed to help us live better, how to live a long and flourishing life. So we listen to the advice of those who are older than us or those who have gone before helps us live. So examples of good advice might be, you know, delayed gratification in the long run usually works out better than instant gratification. So in the moment, it's it's better to get the reward, but if you're willing to delay that, that usually leads to better things in the long run, like going to school or having a family or career, vocation. Many good things that come only come if we are willing to delay our gratification. That's an example of good advice. Another example would be, you know, relationships are, are generally speaking, not, relationships are always worth more investing our time and money and then possessions because no one has ever sat on their deathbed and groaned in agony that they did not have a third car, but many have groaned over lost relationships. This is good advice. Helps us to live well. And oftentimes we approach religion as if it's primarily good advice. So we come to religion and we say, teach me how to live well, how to live as a good person, how to live in an ethical way, or how to live a meaningful life. And every religion has answers to those questions. And Christianity is no different. Christianity certainly tells us how to live. But what's different about Christianity is that it does not bring us good advice first, it brings us good news. 
It tells us something has happened, something remarkable, something beautiful, something strange, something even unbelievable. And it's the most important event in the history of the created universe. And that event is that 2,000 years ago, although Jesus Christ was put to death on a cross by Roman soldiers, three days after he died, he came back to life. Or as we say, he rose from the grave. And so that means that everything that Jesus said in his life was true. It means that he has overcome death. It means that the greatest evil in life, which is death itself, is actually coming undone. And this is why we gather here on this morning of all mornings, but every Sunday morning, because Jesus Christ is alive. And so I want to structure our time this morning as we look at the resurrection account in Luke around two questions. The first question for us is, why is the resurrection good news as opposed to just news? Why is it good news? And second, whom is the good news for? So why is it good news? Whom is it for? Again, we're continuing in, in, in our, our journey through Luke. Our last Sunday, we actually looked at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he agonized over uh, preparing for his crucifixion. And then if you hear on Good Friday, we read through the passion narrative in Luke rather than preaching through it. And we're picking back up in chapter 24. So, to, so what's happened, Friday, early Friday morning, Jesus was crucified. Well, actually, Thursday, let's back up more, he was betrayed by his own disciple. He was arrested by the soldiers. He went through a, a mockery of a justice system and trials. His judge condemned him because the judge was afraid of what would happen to him if he didn't. And early Friday morning, Jesus was placed on a cross, and sometime around 3 p.m., he died. Now, in order to put ourselves in the headspace of the disciples, we have to remember the Jews celebrated the Sabbath. That was on Saturday, and it was a day of rest, and they took that very seriously. There was no work to be done on the Sabbath. There were minute rules about what constituted work and what didn't constitute work, and Sabbath started at sundown Friday. So Jesus dies on the cross, you have an hour or two to bring him down from the cross. They place him in a tomb, and then the sun sets, and you have to go home. And all day Saturday, you can't go out and do anything. You just have to sit in your home. So again, imagine the headspace of the disciples. They spent three years with this Lord following him. They thought he was the Messiah, and here he's put to death on a cross, and they just go home, and they can't do anything about it. Can you imagine the prayers coming from someone like Peter, who had just betrayed his Lord on that Saturday? But Sunday morning comes, and at the crack of dawn, and it's possible to go out to the tomb. Some women go out, and this is where it picks up in, in verses 1 through 7. So again, our first point, why is the resurrection good news? Follow with me as I read verses 1 to 7. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, and while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. 
So a quick overview of what's happened. The women come to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial. We do things like this. You know, if you have an open casket viewing, even though the person's dead, we'll dress them in nice clothes, put the man in a suit, the woman in a nice dress. And it's a way of showing respect for those who have passed away. Well, in Jesus' day, the way they would do that is they'd wrap the body in linen, and they'd put in spices that smelled nice. And the reason they did that is in the Mediterranean climate, bodies would decompose rather quickly. So the spices were meant to counteract the smell of decaying flesh. It's a bit morbid, but that's why they did it. It's how they showed respect. And so the women, we know, we're actually introduced to them in chapter 2, verse 55. It says, the women who had come with him from Galilee. So these are women who'd been with Jesus for his whole ministry, who had followed him throughout Galilee, they come to the tomb, and there's three surprises that they find. First, the tomb has been opened. The way they would bury people in a tomb, they'd roll a pretty heavy stone in front, and if you remember, it had been sealed, and there was supposed to be a Roman guard, and they show up, the guards are who knows where, and the stone has been rolled back. That's the first surprise. The second surprise is they stoop down to look in the tomb, and it's empty. And the third surprise is that there are two angels in brilliant light who announce something to them. And what they say is in verse 6, which is kind of the, the center of the story. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. He's risen. He's not here. And they go back to the disciples, and, and Matthew tells us they leave in fear and great joy. They receive it as good news, and they go in and they announce it to the disciples. But here's the thing. In our story, it doesn't tell us why it's good news. It just tells us that it happens. It relates the story. But it doesn't tell us why the women are excited. And it would take time afterwards as the apostles, as they're reflecting on what they had heard from Jesus, as they're reflecting under the Spirit of God, to begin to put together why the resurrection is good news. And so I thought it would be helpful for us this morning if I first kind of unpacked why is the resurrection actually good news as opposed to just news or even bad news. So why is the resurrection good news? And the first reason is that Jesus, in rising from the dead, has covered our sin. If you remember the last story we looked at, it's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he's agonizing, and it's not just because he's going to be crucified. It's not just the physical suffering that is coming. It's the spiritual suffering that is coming. He pleads with God, if it's possible, may this cup be removed from me, because Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath on sin. Jesus is going to offer up himself as a substitute for us, for our wrongdoing, for our sin. And when it says in verse 6 that he has risen, a more literal translation of that is that he has been raised. Someone raised Jesus from the dead. Well, who did that? Well, of course, it was God. And what's happening is when Jesus rose from the dead, that's God's stamp of acceptance, saying, yes, Jesus, I accept you as a substitute for anyone who will believe in you. As Jesus offered to drink the cup of God's wrath for us, God raising him from the dead is God saying, yes, I affirm this, I accept this. Christ has covered our sin. Every human being lives with guilt and shame. Every one of us. Some of us bury it deeper than others, but we all have it there. And anyone who spends even two minutes thinking, what are the things we've done that we regret? What are our our deepest shames, the moments we're most 
embarrassed of, most shamed of. If I could do a redo, what would I redo in my life? We all, you know, you spend two minutes thinking along those lines and it will lead to a very dark place for all of us. And there's ways that we try to handle our guilt and shame. We numb ourselves, we distract ourselves, we shove it down, we pay thousands of dollars to a therapist to tell us otherwise, but they're all temporary fixes. They don't actually do anything. Because Christ rose from the dead, hear me, he's covered your sin with himself. All of it. When Christ rose from the dead, that was God saying, yes, Jesus is enough for anyone who placed their trust in him. What that means is your worst moments, the moments that you regret the most, that you'd give anything to change, Christ has covered it. All of it. You are forgiven and free. That's the first reason why, why we rejoice on Easter Sunday, because Christ has risen from the dead. He has covered our sin. It was accepted in God's sight. The second reason is that Jesus, in rising from the dead, has defeated death itself. A basic Christian teaching is that the greatest consequence of sin is death. And the theological reasoning for that is is sin is separation from God. God is light. There is no darkness in him. Sin cannot abide with God. And so sin means a separation from God. Now the problem is that only God gives life, which means if we are separated from the only one who gives life, eventually that leads to death. Death is is the final undoing of everything good, true, and beautiful in this world. The most beautiful and noble life ever lived ended the same way, in frailty and weakness and death. Death is our greatest enemy. And the empty tomb meant that death is no longer the final word. When Christ rose from the dead, that means that death, who is our greatest enemy, could not hold Jesus. As the saying goes, you know, the only two guaranteed things in life are death and taxes. Well, Jesus isn't going to free you from paying taxes, I don't think. But death could not hold him. Death is not the final word. That's a great comfort for those of us who said goodbye to loved ones. Those who have died before us, if they're in Christ, it's never a final goodbye. Death is never easy, every funeral is tragic. But because Christ has risen from the dead, there's hope. And even more than that, because Christ has overcome death, think about this. If we don't have to be afraid of death, what do we have to be afraid of? Death is the worst. That's the scariest thing in the world. Everything we say, when we describe something bad happened, the subtext was, but at least I didn't die. (laughs) Like, I lost my job, but at least I didn't die. I got really sick, but I didn't die. You know, uh, my house burned down, but none of us died. That's the worst thing that can happen. And Christ has defeated death. We don't have to be afraid of it. Because Christ rose from the grave, because it was a historical moment when, when Jesus came back to life, we can live lives that are unafraid of death. And the Christian martyrs who gave their lives for following Jesus throughout the centuries have shown us the resurrection brings a different risk-reward calculus. 
Because there's a resurrection from the dead, we don't have to try to squeeze every ounce of happiness and pleasure out of this life. We can give up good things to follow Jesus because we know this isn't all there is. If this is all there was, you know, if Christ has not been raised and let us eat and drink, live your best life now because it's the only one. But it's not because Christ has risen from the grave. So we can give up things to follow him knowing what comes next is even better. Jesus, in rising from the dead, has defeated death. That's the second reason why resurrection is good news. And the third reason is that Jesus, in rising from the dead, has ushered in the kingdom of God. In a broken world, Jesus coming back to life tells us that the kingdom of God has come. But it's not a kingdom that is founded on power and brutality and thirst for glory. It's not like the kind of Russian mirror, if you're following all that, of, of what Putin is trying to do to establish an empire based on, you know, this, with brutality and thirst for glory. It's, it's not like the kingdoms of this world. It's a kingdom that's founded on humility and sacrifice and love. It's a place where the last are first, where the powerful use their power to serve, not to lord, place where the lost are found and where the broken are healed. And ground zero for the kingdom of God is the church, the community that Jesus himself founded in his name, a place where we can live out these new values that have been guaranteed to us because Jesus is risen from the dead. Of course, as you know, the church has oftentimes not lived up to this beautiful ideal that Jesus has laid out for us. But because Christ rose from the dead, we have hope that we at Vine Street can live into that and can look like what Christ has called us to be and do. And the third reason the resurrection is good news is because Jesus rose from the dead, the kingdom of God has come. And so the basic human needs or basic human emotions and experiences of guilt, fear, and purpose, the resurrection speaks to these. Christ and his resurrection has provided all that we need. That's why it's good news. And what's more good news is that our text at least hints at who this good news is for. This brings us to our second point. So that was again, why is it good news? This is whom is the good news for? And let me read us verses 8 to 12. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. In this passage, we see who this good news is for, and it's not those we would assume. First, this good news is for those on the margin. This news is first announced to women who've been following Jesus. And women in the ancient world were second-class citizens. It was built into the legal code. As women, you oftentimes couldn't testify in court. There were restrictions on if you could own property. Oftentimes, you couldn't pass on your own property to your kids. You were literally a second-class citizen. And so to say this is surprising is, is an understatement. It's intentional. The first one that Jesus showed himself to is actually Mary, 
Magdalene, that's told us in another gospel, the first ones to have the news of the resurrection announced to, it was not the, dis- the disciples, it was not the wealthy, and the po- it was the women in the group. And they were the ones who first then went and announced it to others. And it wasn't just women. It was some of whom had a bit of a shady background. Mary Magdalene had demons cast out of her. Now, we don't know that story behind that. We don't know why she was demon-possessed. We don't know how that happened. But again, in the rumor mill, these details don't matter. All that matters is, boy, this woman used to have demonic influences. She's sketchy. And that's the one that Jesus announces his resurrection to first. And again, this isn't like God's like, oh, well, the women are here first. Okay, I guess I'll announce them first. God is sovereign over this. He's doing this for a purpose, for a reason. This is what Paul gets at in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These categories in Galatians are matters of social status. In the church he's writing to, some of them are saying, look, I'm a Jew. I can trace my lineage back to Abraham. That makes me better of a Christian than you are. He says, no, no, no. There's neither Jew or Gentile. Slave or free. Obviously, if you're a slave, you're in a lower social status than if you're freeborn, but it doesn't matter. And the same thing with men and women. In a cultural women were second-class citizens. No, these social distinctions don't matter. We are all one in Christ. And so from the beginning, the good news comes first to those who are on the margin to teach this. Social distinctions don't matter in the kingdom of God, in the church that is founded by Jesus Christ. So first, the good news, who is it for? It's for those on the margin. But second, good news is for the doubters and the faithless. It's interesting, in this story, the women clearly come across better than the men do, right? They're the ones who are at the tomb, they believe, and the disciples are like, you know, oh, you women being so blah, 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 and it's like, well, you know, egg is on your face, man, because they were right. Clearly, the women come across better, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that the women also didn't believe Jesus' words, which is why the angel Asked them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Didn't Jesus tell you that he would die and three days later he would rise? In Luke, it shows us three different times when Jesus spoke to his disciples and told them, I'm going to have to suffer. I'll be put to death at the hands of evil men. But then three days later, I will rise. Which means they were told, and again, it's recorded three different times. It must have been told more than that. The women also had heard this, but yet did not expect Jesus to fulfill his word. And the disciples, they're not even at the tomb. They're so unexpecting Jesus to rise from the grave. Now, the reason, potentially, one of the reasons why the disciples didn't understand Jesus is that when Jesus talked about rising again, they probably thought he meant that he would rise at the end of the world with the general resurrection of the dead. And so, if you, if you remember the story in John 11, Jesus is going to Lazarus. Lazarus has just died. And his sister, Martha, comes to Jesus. And Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, oh, I know he'll rise again on the resurrection on the last day. And so, in response, again, in the hearing of his disciples, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The disciples assumed, okay, Jesus is going to die and he'll rise with every other human being at the end of time. But Jesus has told them, no, I'm the resurrection. Resurrection is bound up in me in some kind of unique way. 
But the disciples didn't believe him. The women didn't believe him. This is who the good news of the resurrection comes to. It's those who didn't believe, those who were doubters and faithless. You know, to be a Christian, there are things you have to believe, specifically about who Jesus was, about what he did on the cross. There are things we have to believe if we want to be a Christian. But here's the tension. Nonetheless, the resurrection was announced to those who didn't believe. It was good news for the doubters and the faithless and those who didn't believe the words of Christ. There's a tension in there. We have to wrestle with a little bit. Now, as a side note, I think some of us by temperament probably doubt more than others. Uh, personally, I, I just, my, the way God made me, I, just, I go through seasons of, of very serious doubt and I've been a Christian long enough that I'm, I'm coming to terms with this will probably be the way I am till I die. And I don't want to doubt. I pray that Christ takes it away. It's debilitating to your spiritual life. It's just, but God just made me in a way that I just, I don't know. And I think some of you may, that, that may, that may uh, sound familiar to you. But it's comforting to me to know that the, di- the disciples also doubted. And, and, and I tell you what, rem- what what removed the doubt of the disciples was not the word of the women, nor was it some kind of reasoned argument. It wasn't until they actually encountered Christ. It's when Christ comes to them and they encounter him. That's when they stop doubting. They say, oh, my God, my Lord. Why am I still a Christian, even though sometimes I have doubts? Is because Christ keeps coming after me and showing himself to me and revealing himself to me. Not in a vision, that would be awesome. Not physically like he did the disciples, but through his word, through his, his church, through his creation. He comes after us. It's good news for the doubter and the faithless. This is good news for those on the margin. It's good news for the doubters and the faithless. And third and finally, it's good news for the sinner. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I used to work in digital marketing for a university, so I ran their email marketing, social media, some website stuff. And so I kind of followed what was going on in digital marketing and higher education. And I remember hearing a story reading a story that, again, in this very niche world of higher education marketing, went viral. Because in 2015, uh, Carnegie Mellon University, a very well-respected institution, sent out 800 acceptance emails to their applicants to their master's in computer science. The problem was over 700 of those applicants were not actually accepted to the program. And what had happened was when they meant to send out an email to those who had been accepted, Whoever sent the email clicked the wrong button and sent it to all of their applicants. And so every person who had finished an application at Carnegie Mellon got an email saying, you've been admitted. And even worse, Carnegie Mellon didn't realize their mistake for seven hours. So you had people, again, this is a very well-respected institution. This would have been like their number one choice. They're going out to dinner with their family and their friends. Uh, You know, they're letting everyone know, posting on social media, One guy even gave his two weeks notice at his job. And then seven hours later, follow-up email, sorry, 700 of you, you have not been admitted. Our mistake. In marketing, there are mistakes you can make, and it's not good, but it's okay. There are mistakes you make that you cannot recover from. And in email marketing, when you're writing on behalf of an institution like Carnegie Mellon, that's a mistake you don't recover from. 
And I guarantee you, there was someone in that marketing team who was fired and will probably never work in marketing again. You just, you can't recover from that. Likewise, we have Peter here. You would think if you want to be a disciple of Christ, no less an apostle, there's some things you can't recover from, such as denying your Lord in the night of his greatest need, such as being a coward and a liar, such as being fake, saying you, 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 you'll go to anything with your, you'll die for your Lord, and then the first hint of danger, you're out of there. Perhaps some of us think deep down somewhere inside of us, yeah, I'm beyond recovery. I'm beyond the grace of God. All the Gospels include Peter's restoration to show us that there is no end to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. There's no road we could walk that would take us too far away, that God cannot forgive us and heal us and bring us home. There's nothing that puts you beyond recovery. And you want proof? Look at Peter. For Jesus did not come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. He came for the liars and the cowards and the hypocrites. He came for Peter. He came for you. He came for me. And the good news of the resurrection is that as Jesus came back from the dead, as he was resurrected, so he takes hopelessly messed up people and he makes us into new creations. This is the good news of the resurrection. In conclusion, the crucifixion that we, set, that we remembered on Friday night, that's the weeping that lasts through the night. But the resurrection is the joy that comes in the morning. It's the good news that Jesus, in rising from the grave, has covered our sin, that, he has, that the death itself has been undone, and that the kingdom of God has come. And it's not an invitation for the good people and, and, and the people who've got their ducks in a row and their five-year plan and those who are living their best life now. But it's for the marginalized and the doubters and the faithless and for the sinners. And the invitation is given by Jesus himself. In Matthew, he says, Come unto me. Who? All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is what we celebrate in the resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, our hearts are full as we reflect on what it means that you came back to life, of what you did, of what you accomplished for us, in us, through us. We are humbled, we are brought low, we are given hope that we never thought was possible. Christ, help us to believe that we know the joy of freedom that comes because Christ has risen and we are his and nothing can remove us from his hands. We pray this in your holy and beautiful and majestic name. Amen.